And welcome back to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm the, the your host, the Conservative Atheist, and I'm joined by my producer and co-host. Writer later. Hey, guys. And, and we're, we're interviewing a very interesting uh, person. He's an author and, uh, and a thinker. Uh, welcome to the show, Joseph Forcato. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure having you. Um, and uh, so uh, now you what was your political perspective again, your, your, pers- your persuasion? I am a sociopolitical realist. That's how I've long defined myself. It means that I try to take the most practical, uh, what I believe is reasonable and responsible position on any given matter of uh, society and politics. And of course, there are a lot of issues that are attendant to uh, attendant to social and political policy. Uh, so when I say I'm a sociopolitical realist, essentially means that on any matter of public importance, I try to adopt a position that I think is best tailored to productive outcomes and ultimately creating a higher quality of life for uh, people. And now, obviously, if you have the point of view that I do, it means that your views are not going to fit into any sort of neat box. My views do span the political spectrum. People like throwing all sorts of labels onto them, which I am not terribly happy about. But I must uh, stipulate that my views absolutely do pull toward the right based on my understanding of the human condition. Well, to be fair, I have heard you refer to yourself as a conservative, so... Um, I, I think that it was. I think that uh, I think somebody said my views were generally conservative, and by the standards of American politics, I didn't argue that. I think that was the context there, if I recall correctly. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and uh, go ahead. I, I was gonna. Uh, I, I guess shifting gears a bit because I've I've been a listener to you. I think since 2019, which I awesome. When I think you first uh, rebooted Cato Godfrey, but I was wondering mm-hmm. this because it seemed like you have you started the podcast sometime in 2017, 2018, and then took a little bit of break and then restarted up in 2019, maybe about a year or a couple months. I, I, am I correct on that? It actually started in 2017 in a very primitive sense, and it, there were some episodes that were done then just rather informally with Paul and myself and others who were kind enough to join us, uh, but it really got the ball rolling in uh, in 2000, and uh, I hope I don't misremember here, 2019. Okay, so you had done it uh, pretty continuously through that whole time. Uh, we actually took a pretty long break, but it was it was there. There are quite a few episodes of the show that one can find that were archived from the original Cato Gottfried that have now been aired alongside other Cato Gottfried, uh, newer Cato Gottfried uh, episodes. Right. I remember when you used to do all the live chats and uh, uh, yeah. you used to do them like once or twice a week where mm-hmm. I wasn't even you were uh, asking for script. Uh, uh, I guess what are they called? Super chats. You would just answer questions. But uh, yep. I remember at the time, I don't know if you remember saying this, but uh, I guess you had uh, Jared Taylor, JT, and uh, I guess they referenced something about uh, some Hillsdale, uh, I guess her name was Lisa Roach. And uh, Oh, yes, 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 absolutely. I, I don't know if you remember because I, I do. I, I do I remember that. I was the guy that. kept uh, chatting like, oh, it's Google Lisa Roach, and it seemed like you laughed every time. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, she was the gal who committed suicide at Hillsdale uh, with some controversy, I believe, with the president of the university of the college. Yeah, and I believe uh, Jared Taylor was uh, kind of lambasting her because I guess uh, she, I guess Charles Murray and him had spoke at the university when I guess he was much, I guess, more mainstream. And she essentially agreed with all of the Charles Murray, uh, all of Charles Murray's viewpoints uh, behind closed doors. 
mm-hmm. but then publicly lambasted uh, Jared Taylor as a racist. <laughs> and and wow. uh, I, I just thought it was funny. Just kept referencing that. And uh, you didn't seem to be annoyed by it. I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> no, I, I can see why. And uh, obviously, the uh, for people who don't know anything about what we're discussing, uh, this woman met what we could call a dead end. And uh, I highly recommend you Google it. I guess that brings us back to where we started with this. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, if what what would your what would your take be on uh, on someone like a, a Jared Taylor? Well, I think he is a, an advocate for uh, basically uh, whites, and there are plenty of advocates out there for their ethnicity or their race or whatever. And I don't hold any negative views uh, toward anyone who advocates positively for their group, as long as they don't say, "Well, you know, then this other group has to be vanquished or." Uh, subject to conquest or any of these nasty things. Uh, I'm in favor of people being who they are and advocating for their uh, peoplehood, regardless of what their background is, as long as they don't use this as a license to start trampling over the rights of others. Yeah, one, one, of the, one thing I liked about Jared Taylor was, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people of his ilk tend to be very anti-Semitic. And one thing mm-hmm. I liked about him was, is that he was, he, there's no indication that he has any anti-Semitism whatsoever. He always avoids issues that are, shall we say, uh, uh, fringe, uh, particularly with regard to you know, conspiracy theories about Jews and this and that and the other thing. Uh, a lot of people, as I have seen, uh, when they, whether on the far left or the far right, when they become enamored of anti-Semitism, they typically wind up following it beyond uh, the movement that they started out in. Uh, like, say someone's an anti-Semite because they think that uh, Jewish issues don't really well to i don't know white issues or whatever but then eventually they become so anti-semitic that they forget about the white stuff and they wind up having common cause with like lewis farrakhan types and all that and on the far left a lot of people uh start out there being anti-semitic and then they sometimes become like neo-nazis so basically the anti-semitism thing is the descent into madness yeah, yeah we, I, we we had a we had an interesting i just want to say real quick we had an interesting conversation um with ali alexander and uh, come to find out, he had said and and said to me because I'm, I'm half Jewish, and he had said some uh, things to me about that were extremely anti-Semitic, and I I had no idea that he was like that, but it was yeah, yeah it was a real eye opener. Well, I myself am of Jewish background to varying extents on both sides. I identify as a secular Jewish humanist, uh, and I certainly am not a fan of anti-Semitism. Uh, what I've seen of it, though, uh, it, 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 I mean, it disgusts me, obviously, but I do try to figure out why people hold whatever views they hold. And what I've seen of it is that a lot of people want a simple answer to a complex problem. And for for each person, the answer and the problem that uh, – that dogs then is different, uh, but a lot of them just seem to make seem to want it to be that they want the world to fit into some sort of nutshell. Uh, and if it does, then it's simple enough for them to understand, and they could somehow get uh, some sort of relief from whatever ails them. That's the general impression I get of the people who get into the whole anti-Semitic thing, and it's really, uh, I mean, it's sad to see. But uh, this sort of if we, the kind of era that we live in, where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of alienation, a lot of false prophets, if one will, uh, it creates an environment where people believe absurd things because they're so on edge about uh, about whatever is going on that uh, makes them feel insecure. 
I, I, I am. I, I want to pose one thing to you, real quick, and mm -hmm. then, and then, and, and then, obviously, my co-host has some questions mm -hmm. he'd like to ask. Uh, so, my theory is is that it's it's a a, a religious global version of the Oedipus complex. Uh -huh. The Christians don't quite feel fully full fledged like a full fledged religion as long as the as long as their progenitors still exist. The Jews and the Muslims feel similar. It could very well be that, although of course, I'm, you know, the overall majority of Christians aren't anti-Semites. But for right. some of them, there is that. Uh, I think there is certainly an uneasiness they have with Jews because if one looks at the the New Testament, it, it claims to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But the problem is, is that Jesus didn't fulfill the requirements of the Hebrew Messiah. So if there are Jews pointing out the obvious, uh, some of these Christians obviously are going to take offense to that because they can't refute the Jewish argument to be blunt right that's exactly right okay sorry about that uh, brighter later go ahead oh no it's very interesting yeah i was it's interesting because uh, i don't think i've ever heard you uh, talk about kind of your your theory of anti-semitism but uh, mm -hmm. i i by and large uh, kind of concur with it uh, from my kind of readings of kind of the more anti-semitic white nationalist websites like countercurrents it seems that these people believe that uh well we believe in white national it seems they start off that they want some sort of white homogeneity or white nationalism which i think is probably pernicious <laughs> probably on some mm -hmm. level but and then it becomes, okay, well, what exactly, how exactly do we fight this? And then it becomes, well, there's these Jews out there and they tend to be liberal and they have their own sort of like weird ethno state and they want some sort of like heterogeneity for us. And then it really just becomes like this obsession of Jews. And after that, like you're saying, that kind of jettisons everything else. And I, I realized this a bit with someone like Richard Spencer, where it, it seemed like they were, he was like a kind of the white nationalist, kind of like anti-Semitic ilk. And now it seems that he's just like this anti-Semite and he seems like he's trying to... Uh, make sort of weird overtures to the left, which I know you point out a lot, at, uh, but uh, it's 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 very much kind of this kind of reductive where I think they have the kind of convoluted uh, theories about the world and they're not quite sure how to make them come to fruition. And they kind of find a shortcut with anti-Semitism. And I, I've heard many explicitly say that uh, we can't survive with that. We can't survive with Jews. We have to take care of that problem and then all things fall align. So I, I think it's very much kind of a, a kind of reductive, simplistic answer, but uh, it is it is kind of fascinating why so many people hate Jews. <laughs> It's 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 a fascinating and a macabre sense, and it really goes to show just how uh, what a desperate situation these people are in that they have to adopt this out uh, outlandish, to say the least, worldview. What a lot of them neglect to see, though, is that uh, Jews, particularly in the United States, the ones whom they whom they uh, hate most, uh, American Jews are not engaged in some sort of uh, homogeneity, whereas for the Gentiles. They support uh, a, a more diverse society. The overwhelming majority of American Jews intermarry. Uh, American Jews are probably more accepting of interracial marriage than any other demographic. And I would, I, I'm certain that American Jews disproportionately interracially marry more than uh, other religious groups do. Uh, I am also very certain that most American Jews are extremely uh, hesitant, to say the least, about Israel. They find it to be too religiously uh, and ethnically conservative for their tastes. And so these anti semites who think that somehow they're getting back at uh, American Jews by going against Israel, they really don't realize that American Jews and Israeli Jews are tr tremendously different groups and that your average Israeli Jew is very, very, very right-wing by the standards of the U.S. But a lot of these, you know, uh, anti-Semitic ideologues, they don't care to see this. Uh, like I said, they're just desperate people and they want quick answers to their problems and they have trained their minds to hone in on this uh, very misguided idea that the Jews are at the center of their woes. Yeah, so I should, would... I, should I should I should I should we assume that 
that uh, this is a good segue here. So should I, we, we assume that you are supportive of Israel. And, and how did you feel about uh, Trump moving the uh, embassy to Jerusalem? Well, I thought it was a good thing. I am supportive of Israel. I believe that uh, a Jewish state is a necessity, and I hope that Israel has many, many happy, prosperous years to come. But I'm also so supportive of Europe having uh, states for its own peoples, uh, and I wish them many happy years to come. So it's on the same level that I say uh, that there should be Jewish nationalism in Israel and, say, Hungarian nationalism in Hungary. Uh, for me, it's all part of the same uh, mindset, which is that people, should be allowed to uh, voluntarily congregate with those similar to them. And they should be able to have a society that is organic and uh, not something that's, you know, synthetic, uh, basically uh, polyester in a manner of speaking, which is what we get in the U.S. And that uh, peoples should not be made to despise who they are or uh, sacrifice the integrity of their nationhood for some bizarre political ideology, which holds itself out as you know bringing about equality and this and that. But in reality, it only fosters division and uh, self-destruction. I couldn't agree more. I, mm -hmm. I, I was going to say really quickly, uh, to kind of finish up on the uh, anti-Semitism, that's uh, the, the one irony I always find with these people is that, obviously, like you said, it's the Jews. It's something like, I think it's like... Uh, either they they breed out or they uh, uh don't have kids at all it's like mm -hmm. something north of 70 or 80 percent and if you look at uh, uh with con if you look at with whites it's something like 90 over 90 percent of whites will uh breed with another white person you know mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. that's always the irony that uh, these people don't see which exactly and it's bizarre that they don't see it because it's right there anybody could find it out but i think that they don't care to see it and even if they you know can't help but see it they'll try to explain it away because they just really want to hold on to this article of faith that the solution to all their problems lies you know with animus toward this one group and in reality of course the the precise opposite is true but i think you know for these people it's really an article of faith that they cling to the, their anti-semitic ideology it's same the same as someone who believes that you know jesus Jesus is going to rise from the come back. No, I'm sorry, you already quote unquote rose from the dead, but right. he's going to come back one day <laughs> and make everything better. I think it operates from the exact same part of the human mind. Yeah, the one thing I, I guess I'll add another point to this, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this because this is another person I, I've talked, I've uh, or when you used to do the chats, I, I asked you about, but Steve Saylor because mm -hmm. Steve Saylor is kind of an interesting case because you can see him. Uh, he, he obviously put forth uh, a while ago. He put forth like an article. I think this was like two years ago now. He's obviously said some pretty anti-Semitic things, but he once said something to the effect of, oh, I think a big problem with our discourse is Jews like Ezra Klein and uh, Matthew Iglesia, basically, or I guess particularly uh, Ezra Klein, and he pays a particular attention to him. But then he'll say something like, oh, well, Orthodox Jews uh, tend to vote Republican, and those are obviously, that's going to be the future, future of American Jewry, so it's not really going to matter. And I always wonder that, uh, is he ultimately contradicting himself, or is there kind of like a nuanced opinion here, even if it's, uh, there is some kind of a perverse aspects to it? I would say that Sailor probably holds uh, <laughs> nuanced, uh, multifaceted views on American Jews, if I had to say. I think only he could say exactly what his opinion is, but it seems to me that he probably is uh, uh, conflicted on American Jews on the whole. Okay. And another question is, uh, I, I know I've asked you this in the chat as well, but uh, have you, because I know Paul Gottfried has some sort of correspondence with him or did, and have uh, I, I think you have tried to reach out to him, and I don't know if uh, that's something you uh, uh, try to do uh, pretty readily, uh, kind of uh, reach out to him and see if he's open for an interview. Uh, who, Steve Saylor? Yes. I think I did try to see if he's open to an interview a while ago. I don't even remember one, but I believe he was busy. If I recall, that's the way that went. Okay. Now, if if you uh, if 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 Trump doesn't win, 
if he doesn't if he decides not to go well he would win if he tried but if he decides not to go for the republican nominee uh what would you who who would your second choice be i think uh that that's a good question because the gop does not have the best bench in terms of who's you know practically willing to run uh, I mean, theoretical candidates, we can really get off into that, but it's basically, it's, it's pretty much pointless. Uh, it, I think that DeSantis would be the next best option, even though I've had some criticisms of him over the years, but I think he'd be the next best option. I don't know that DeSantis would do as well in the Rust Belt as Trump would, though. There are definitely some issues there that would be red flags for a lot of Rust Belt residents, particularly with regard to environmentalism, and I'm not angry at DeSantis for this at all, but uh, he is a, a pretty staunch supporter of the environment he actually unilaterally banned fracking in florida uh so he uh, on environmental policy is actually probably on the whole to the left of joe biden and here in florida renewable energy is a very big thing there is a lot of state uh interest in transferring from anything to do with fossil fuels to solar especially so uh, desantis is a big supporter of that among other things uh it works for florida i think in the rust belt it would not work well but all the same i think he'd be better than any other republican uh of course you know a lot of people want mike pence to run i mean if you basically want to run a george w bush era values voter uh and have him lose in an electorate much less religious than was the case in 2004 i guess you could go with pence and just wait to see what happens but uh I think people who think Pence is going to win uh, would win a national election, even against Joe Biden, if in some alternate universe he ran again. Uh, I think that would that these people are profoundly misguided. Yeah, I, I, I just, don't think I don't think Pence was a bad guy. I, I just I just don't think that I think he's dry, uh, and he just he he lacks charisma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Unfor unfortunately, this is a superficial world we live in, and not only do you have to have the credentials, you also have to have the charisma. And I think Absolutely. Bob Dole, Bob Dole, unfortunately, proved that. I, mm -hmm. I'm wondering because this has obviously come up in your. Uh, this is yeah, you've talked about this recently or for a while now. But with uh, with Rand with Ron DeSantis, I guess uh, I guess uh, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, I think he set a 15 week abortion ban, which obviously is against a, uh, I believe it was 24 weeks with uh, uh -huh. Roe v. Wade and and uh, Casey. And uh, I guess you ultimately viewed this as kind of a smart overture for DeSantis, and in in effect, uh, sorry. Oh, it's fine. That, that was a loud one. But uh, I, I guess in, a, in effect allowing for all abortions in the state. I, I'm wondering if you think someone like DeSantis is ultimately pro-life or do you think he's someone that's just very tactful and realizes that uh, it's ultimately pro-life policies are just going to be a detriment in the state? I, I think that the 15-week ban he signed, while I don't oppose it uh, in and of itself, uh, it, it was very much out of alignment with the state Supreme Court's interpretation of the state constitution, which protects abortion up to 24 weeks, and then the law was ruled unconstitutional, and now it's going through the appellate process, which is going to take years. Uh, I would support the law being struck down and reverting to 24 weeks, even though I'm fine with the 15-week uh, limit, but I, I support this happening because, number one, what, what DeSantis did was unconstitutional, but number two, because the some people in the Republican legislature would use the 15-week ban as an opening to even more uh, onerous abortion restrictions, even though DeSantis is not committed to anything specific, it would just be very bad for the state GOP to go down this road. And of course, very bad for the state uh, in terms of, you know, 
uh, potentially not having any abortion services. It would be a nightmare for a host of reasons, many of which have uh, nothing to do with, you know, uh, short-term GOP uh, fortunes. But I, I think that DeSantis was very smart not to go for an outright abortion ban, which he really couldn't do anyway, but not to even, you know, try to push for one, to, to stir the pot in favor of one. I think that a 15-week ban in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's quite reasonable. Uh, and I think that the, the that if, if, if uh, Republicans in places like Kansas and uh, Indiana, it would seem, took his advice or followed his lead, they would not be in the sort of situations they're in. Indiana has a lot of uh, public rancor going on because the legislature is trying to ban abortion. Uh, in Kansas, obviously, the Republicans put it to the voters, thinking it would somehow pass that uh, the state constitution would be amended so they could do an abortion ban. Uh, and we all know how that turned out. So I think that DeSantis does have a very good perspective here. It's just that he went about it in the wrong way. And it could be used by certain Republicans, a minority in the legislature, to try and do something crazy. Now, in Florida, abortion is very popular. Uh, in terms of its legality, and a lot of people have them. It's uh, the it's the third uh, it's the third most uh, it's the, it's the state of the, they're the top three states for abortions numerically in the U.S. Uh, the first is New York, as I remember. The second is Illinois, and the third is Florida. So obviously, abortion is a big part of Florida, uh, and uh, to see it just you know vanish would be very unpopular, and I think would have very negative repercussions for the state. Yeah, so I, I guess I want to segue this into a, the, the the ultimate question on when it comes to this issue. Uh, what was your what was your position on the overturning of Roe versus Wade? I disliked it, although I admit that constitutionally it was a very unsound decision. Uh, but I disliked it because I liked the effects it produced. Uh, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly how many uh, abortions took place since Roe was passed, but certainly it's uh, north of seventy million. And I, if, if those 70 million were here today, we'd be in a third world country. That's the bottom line. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, when you consider who gets the abortions and the birth rate that these people have, it is what it is. Uh, so I'm very glad that Roe was passed. I'm glad we live in a society, which or so-called society at this point, which had uh, the benefit of, of, of not having these people here. Uh, and we have Roe to thank for that. However, I will admit that's constitutionally an unsound decision. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the one we're going to have to agree to disagree on. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying as far as uh, not turning this into a third world country and the uh, the you know re reproduction levels of certain groups uh, that could be problematic. But uh, I, I don't like the solution of uh, extermination. And to me, mass extermination through abortion, um, you know, if you consider it a human life, it's not there's really no justification for it. Even if you account in things like uh, rape, incest, and uh, medical necessity, all three combined account for less than 5% of abortions every year. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I, I know that there's solutions we need to come up with and we need to be more realistic about the problems we have in this country. I don't know that we ever will be, but I think we should. Uh, but I, I just don't think that the, the solution is to kill people off. And uh, I, I think, I mean, that's my position. Sure. And I will just stipulate that I don't consider the termination of a pre-viability uh, of an unviable fetus or an embryo to be uh, homicidal in any way. I've actually seen an abortion of, of, of a 12-week-old fetus, and uh, I can't say that was in any respect uh, the same as slaughtering a newborn. But of course, people have their own positions on these matters. Uh, what I will say is that 
we could have a national consensus about abortion if people really agreed to give a lot of ground on both sides. And I would support this. It could be that abortion is legally uh, allowed nationwide, up to 12 weeks gestation, the first trimester, and it's conducted via pill. Uh, and instead of going to clinics, unless it's an emergency, in which case even later in the pregnancy would be allowed, but that's only an emergency case, uh, certified by two doctors. So I think that the best thing to do is to try to make abortion happen as early as possible and to have it take place by a pill and uh, to have the pill eventually become over the counter. So this way, obviously, you know, right now people take two women have to take two pills uh, and they could be combined, I think, over time into one if there were enough research that went into this. And uh, eventually, if it's safe enough, to be made over the counter. So it'd be like the morning after pill you can get just to induce an abortion within the first trimester. Uh, that would basically make all clinics go out of business. Uh, it would end late-term abortion on a voluntary basis, unless it were you know, medically necessary, which would be a very, very rare thing indeed. And I think that people could rally around this, most Americans, probably about 60 to 70 percent of them. Uh, but unfortunately, on both sides, it is the extreme uh, that makes the impression. A lot of people on the right want no abortion at all. Uh, some of them not even in cases of uh, saving the life of the mother. And some people on the left want abortion until the damn thing comes out of the birth canal. So it, it's really uh, it's really extreme, the positions uh, which each side is staking out. But it's not surprising because we live in an age of intense polarization and people tend to get highly reactionary and they adopt more and more aggressive posturing against whatever the other side is doing. But I think there is a common ground that can be sought out here. I don't think it will be sought out, though, because of the uh, the impressions with the which the extremes continually make. Well, I'm let me say this. I, I would not let me let me say one last thing. I, I would not. I would absolutely not uh, support uh, a federal ban on abortions. Mm -hmm. To me, me, it has to be, it should be a state's rights issue. Uh, I I don't, I don't believe it. So it's not like I'm saying that I want, that I want to over, you know, some people want to Roe versus Wade overturned so that they, then they could possibly get a a, a national ban. That's not, that's not what I want at all. Uh, I think each state should have, have a referendum on it and decide and then let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. I'm wondering really quickly, uh, is your biggest qualm with abortion currently that uh, it's ultimately just going to hurt the Republican base because so many because it's just a good rallying call for Democrats and the majority of people support it? Or is it more so that uh, you're going to just have undesirables uh, being born, which is invariably just going to hurt the country? Ultimately, it's not even about the country. It's about the human species. Uh, But it is about undesirables, no question. And the issues relative to the Republican Party uh, come about uh, underneath this primary concern. So it's really about both things. But I am uh, a humanist, and I am focused on what I believe is best for the human uh, race on the whole. And I believe very strongly that uh, reproductive health is important to promote the idea of selective reproduction, to create a healthier uh, human kind and a better uh, set of social conditions going forward. Okay. I, I, I guess uh, really shifting gears here. I, I was wondering, because uh, I, I think I had recently uh, gotten, I think you had uh, taken some snipes, some snipes at these uh, trad cap types and uh, <laughs> You pointed out that there's cardinals and such that support gay marriage mm-hmm. and that uh, the Vatican in general kind of supports a left, at least uh, left wing physical issues and mm-hmm. 
I guess you were essentially saying that the, they're supporting uh, kind of a false cause or what they're Absolutely. doing ultimately a dud. And I'm wondering, are you sympathetic to the argument? Because I, I think I pose this to you that uh, Catholicism is ultimately the way it's structured. I think it's kind of better at kind of uh, uh, subverting kind of like herd mentality. And that if you kind of have like a stronger, I guess, a stronger base, I guess, in the way it's structured, that's a, you're not going to get kind of thrown to the whims, such as like with uh, a lot of like evangelical Christians where 20 years ago they were incredibly anti-gay and then they're allowing their they're allowing uh, uh, their orphanages uh, or gay <laughs> families to adopt from their orphanages. And I'm wondering if you're sympathetic to that or you think that uh, kind of Catholicism and conservatism ultimately just doesn't mesh that well. And it's ultimately just a fool's errand to uh, 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 say that they do. The sort of Roman Catholicism you're talking about was popular before the Vatican II reforms of the early 1960s. And that Catholicism was remarkably resilient at uh, being closed-minded, essentially, which prevented it from being subverted, uh, needless to say. So it was closed-minded, which I don't like, but it was closed-minded for a cause, and I do understand the cause. That said, today's Roman Catholicism is not this – this is what track Catholic Catholicism is. It's pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism. Uh, today's Roman Catholicism is not that. Today's Roman Catholicism is gay uh, unions being blessed officially by the German wing of the Roman Catholic Church and of course they're violating the doctrine but the Vatican could care less. Meanwhile, you have these people in America saying no, we stand for the one true church whose doctrine never changes. Meanwhile, the doctrine just changed because the death penalty under Francis's reign became unambiguously uh, sinful, uh, whereas under John Paul II, uh, through uh, God Benedict, the guy who came after him, uh, it was good. The death penalty was okay in some cases. So, no, I think the whole trad cat thing is ridiculous. I think it's an attempt to live in the past. I think it's really, uh, in many cases, just a fashion statement, a LARP, uh, the desire to have a more medieval take on modernity. Uh, and I don't think that it's something intellectually serious at all. Uh, I think, and I'm, that's not saying that some people believe in this, don't take themselves seriously in their beliefs. They do. But I think that in terms of something that would impact the broader society, it's completely unserious. It's just basically like a fandom. So that, yeah, I, that, that leads me into a couple more questions. Uh, one is, is that, uh, do you support the death penalty? That's, that's one yes. question. The other, okay, good. The, the other, yeah, people always say if I'm pro-life, I can't be pro-death penalty. That's like saying uh, if I'm pro-freedom, I can't be for people going to jail for committing crimes. It's not the same thing. Uh, but so the other question I have for you is, is do you support gay marriage? It's it, this is where it's tricky. Uh, I don't believe that the government should be in the marriage business at all. And I've said this long before Hodges was handed down by the Supreme Court. Uh, but I think that what it should be are domestic partnerships and civil unions. Obviously, the domestic partnerships would have a lesser uh, level of uh, legal. Uh, how, how do I put this? Uh, legal. Uh, Unity wouldn't be the right word because the, you know, the government can't make people feel unified in a relationship. But a domestic partnership would set forth a far lesser degree of legal obligations between partners in a relationship than a civil union would. But So I think that the government should offer uh, domestic partnerships uh, or and civil unions and people get either or depending on the, uh, the commitment level in their relationship. Uh, well, that sir, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, let me let me say this, uh, and, and you give, give me your take on it, if you will. So mm -hmm. I, I don't support gay marriage. I do support gay civil unions. And, and here's, here's my justification for this, is that when it comes to adoption, I think 
I think if you have a heterosexual couple and, and a same sex or, or homosexual couple, all things being equal, because every time I say this, someone says, well, what if, you know, what if the one couple are drug addicts and, and maniacs and the gay couple is this upstanding citizens? No, all things being equal. I, I think that the, the child should go to the heterosexual couple because it's the, it's the most natural it's going to give the it's going to give the you know the 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 true male female influence when it comes to uh, the formative years, uh, and I, I just think it's the optimum circumstance. It doesn't mean the gay couples can't be great parents. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be allowed to adopt. I just don't think that they should have the same standing, if all things being equal. I think that uh, I I personally do not like the idea of two men adopting a boy or two women adopting a girl. Uh, if it's two men adopting a girl or two women adopting a boy, uh, I, I don't have a problem with that. Although obviously uh, it would be impossible to have a law like this because it would be uh, sexual discrimination. It would never fly. That's just my personal preference. Uh, I think though that when it comes to 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 gay marriage, I was going to say that if a religious institution wants to have holy matrimony between only heterosexuals that's fine or if they want to do a homosexual holy matrimony uh that's fine too i support this being an issue of religious liberty so no gay marriage recognized by the state but if individual churches want to do gay marriage or individual uh congregations whatever they could do that perfectly fine it's their business now uh but when it comes to to, to gay adoptions i've long been uh, very leery about how that functions, which is why I have my perspective of it being okay on the basis of the uh, the, the the child being adopted, not being of the same sex as the parents. Uh, but something like that would never fly, unfortunately. Right, it makes makes sense though. It makes logical sense. Yep, absolutely. I was uh, I, I was wondering, and this is a this is a question we interviewed a whole English, I believe, two days ago, and I I asked him this because I was interested in it. But it seems like every time you guys talk, you you discuss uh, Nick Fuentes for at least 15, 20 minutes, which I don't know if you've, uh, I don't know if you realize that or found that to be something interesting, but uh, I, I have a theory on that. And I, I think it's because that uh, people that, uh, and I obviously I'm, I might be uh, conferring a label here, but people that are somewhat on the distant right or pay attention to some of the writers are ultimately uh, invariably going to be drawn to kind of the, uh, the biggest figure in it, which I guess is uh, Nick Fuentes at the point. And I, I find myself doing it where I'll find like leaks or whatever this guy's doing. And usually a lot of times it's just, I'll just type him in Twitter and it'll, it's always finished off by Nick Fuentes gay, which that's, <laughs> that's interesting in and of itself. But do you have any kind of theories on that? And do you ever wonder that uh, it's odd that, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think you, I don't think you fix it on someone like Nick Fuentes, but uh, the amount of time you spend on him, at, uh, at least relative to how serious of a political figure he actually is. Well, he's basically a punchline at this point, like a meme. So we discuss him uh, for that reason. It's sort of like if you're going to do a late night show, they have a comedy sketch and they have some sort of buffoonish character on making jokes. I would say that at this stage, Nick Fuentes is more or less our buffoon. Uh, and uh, that, that's basically it. His following has been decimated by a series of revelations about his uh, personal life. And uh, it's also just him being deplatformed too but no he, he's a figure who basically you just make fun of nowadays and it's uh it, there's so much material there that you can't help but do it uh so i view him as basically a comedic entity now uh, although i don't think he sees himself in that way i think the guy might just well be legitimately bonkers at this point uh but you know who really can say uh, i think that fuentes i don't know that he there it really even is a big 
as what one could call the biggest figure on the non-establishment right in this day and age. I, I strongly, I, 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 I don't think there is. I think that really it's just become so fractured and uh, disunified that uh, you just have many different people. And Fuentes was someone whose star was shining brighter than the sun. Uh, in late 2019, early 2020, that's when he was at the zenith of his of his popular appeal. But now he's basically in the ghetto at uh, what is it, cozy, and he is uh, he's talking to it at a dwindling base. Now, obviously, the revelation that he's into transvestite pornography uh, that was nothing that helped. <laughs> that was nothing that helped him out uh, right. in terms of being a traditionalist and a moral. Uh, Puritan, but uh, you know uh, there were other things that also contributed to his downfall, as I said before. Uh, but a very weird guy. He sort of embodies the hypocrisy of the religious right of many of the more zealous, uh, you know, uh, trad guys, uh, even of anti-Semites, because he obviously, you know, he's he's, uh, he's all these things that I just said. So it's 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 Nick Fuentes is like the perfect guy to make fun of because he's just he's not only who he is, which is pathetic, but he's an avatar for so many different things that he's like a one man unintentional comedy show. Yeah, I, I agree. Speaking of of, of uh, lunatics and the on the on the right, uh, I don't know if you have you followed the uh, oh uh, Alex Jones. Uh, yes, I have. Him? Yes, that, it's it's. I was gonna say your that, voice sounds very similar to his I own. Know. By the way, oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> you don't know how much that makes me cringe when people. I, I hate to use even use the word cringe, but it's the perfect word. But mm -hmm. some people say I sound like Alex Jones. Some people say I sound like Pin from Pin and Teller. I prefer to hear Pin from Pin and Teller because <laughs> Alex Jones, my God, I don't even want to be associated with his voice. He is so he is so batshit crazy. I, I can't even put it into words. But uh, yeah, I, I was really glad that he that he's being held accountable. At least, hopefully, I, I mean he's gonna he's gonna do bankruptcy and he's gonna he's gonna squirm and he's gonna try to get out of paying anybody anything. But uh, at this point, it looks like there's a good chance. And you know, he he actually lied on the stand. And his 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 absolute moron uh, attorney sent all of the information from his cell phone to the to the opposing side. So it was perfect. I mean, he he could be prosecuted for uh, perjury on the stand. It could happen. Also, his lawyer could get, uh, dis I would imagine, uh, I don't know the rules of, of the Texas bar, but it would seem only rational that his lawyer could get reprimanded or maybe even disbarred for doing uh, what, what doing what was done there. I mean, that was just crazy, sending those details out. And now uh, Joe's is getting subpoenaed by the January 6th committee over it. I mean, geez. But uh, I, I think that uh, I think that when it comes to Alex Jones, He's someone who got caught up in his own alternative uh, world, and he eventually uh, couldn't sustain it, and it collided with the real world. And that is uh, the consequence of that is his trial. And I know it was what four point nine million or four point one million yesterday. It was yeah, it was four point one million, and they were convening uh, again today to see what else. That that was the minimum that, that they agreed that the jury agreed for them to get, and they were convening today about. Uh, you know, possible more penalties yeah. and more. They released, they reached a decision. I think it was 40 something million or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So That's he's, true. yeah, they're leaving him out to, out to dry. And, uh, you know, the funny part is, is that his, the, the opposing counsel, when they got the information from his lawyer, 
-hmm. they they messaged them right away and said, "Hey, listen, we've got this information. Are you, do you want to do you want to uh, claim privilege? Because if you claim privilege, we won't even open up. We'll just send it straight back to you." So mm -hmm. then they had to wait ten days, and they waited eleven days. No response from his team. So not only That's did they insane. send it, they didn't even respond. And mm -hmm. so then, yeah, of course, then they were open. You know, they opened it up and used it in court, and they were legally justified in doing so. Yep. I, I don't know why his lawyer did this. Uh, it's almost like the lawyer was. Uh, I I don't know. I really don't know. But it's 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 very strange. This is uh, Jones might be better off representing himself in court. That's saying something. Well, the picture of his lawyer uh, giving the middle finger to the other attorneys. <laughs> this, this this is the caliber of, of, of legal defense he's got mm -hmm. yes uh i i, I it's strange because he should be able to afford something much better crazy lawyer for a crazy man i guess I, that's exactly it I, i'm wondering really quickly i don't know if you guys ever talked about this but i'm wondering if uh what, what paul godfrey's view on someone like alex jones is and i'm also wondering if if you had the chance to interview him would you take it I would interview Alex Jones, yes. I don't know what Paul's view on Alex Jones is. I never inquired. Uh, but uh, I don't think he'd be a terribly big fan of his. Okay, I can see it going both ways, which uh, I'm typically... I, it's, I, I find it funny when I ask people that, uh, what their view on Alex Jones is and seemingly uh, reasonable people. Someone will be sympathetic to it and they'll think that... Uh, I, I'm not even quite sure why they're sympathetic to, to him. Maybe it's just because he's like a general kind of right-wing figure. But uh, or maybe they kind of uh, like his clout or something, and they don't want to uh, uh, rebuff that or negate that. I, I don't know. It's all very odd that someone like that uh, has become. A, I mean, the to call, I mean, calling a spade a spade. He's pretty much a mainstream kind of right wing figure. It's. I think the whole Jones thing. A lot of people in the media hated him because he was having a, a very serious alternative framework to their own which is say he was having this mini media empire and he was generating a lot of interest and people were flocking to him in the media obviously saw that as a threat but then when he starts saying all this crazy stuff i think probably the government uh obviously a lot of ngos and uh politicians uh, and political strategists started seeing him as a threat so i think at the end of the day he basically made an enemy of everyone uh who's in the establishment and i'm not a fan of the establishment but i mean if you unite them if you unite them all against you it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's going to happen right that's exactly that's exactly right that's exactly right you, you have to be somewhat reasonable on some level you can't be crazy you can't you can't you can't be a, a cluster bomb of insanity in all directions Otherwise, you're going to isolate yourself to the point where nobody will take you seriously and you don't have any allies. And, uh, you know, you can't be right every single time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, so. I guess I'm wondering somebody uh, that I consider, I guess, somewhat tangential. She actually might have been interviewed by uh, Alex Jones at one point, but uh, someone like Stefan Malnu. I'm wondering because I, I know you've had him on a couple times. Mm -hmm. I think you're. Uh, I think you. I think you have some sort of affinity with him, and uh, there's there are things I like about him. But uh, I also feel like at times that he can kind of be. Uh, I, I guess just saying uh, my views kind of explicitly about him. I feel like he could be kind of a cult figure, and I'm kind of wondering what your views on him and if uh, maybe the good outweighs the bad and some of the stuff he does or. I always enjoy chatting with Stefan. He and I have only had great conversations, and I look forward to conversing with him again. I think it's terrible. 
how he was uh, basically jettisoned off the off the mainstream internet. I mean, on YouTube, he had almost a million subscribers, and he was getting more views and attention than some mainstream media outlets were. Uh, and they really did not like, I think, that he just opened up people's minds toward a different point of view. Now, obviously, I don't agree with him on everything. That's, you know, putting it mildly. But at the same time, I think he was doing something much more productive than Alex Jones was doing at the time he got banned off the planet. Yeah, he, he he was. He, Stephen Molyneux is a very intelligent man. There's no doubt about that. But he was uh, getting pretty cozy with Alex Jones, which to me mm-hmm. hurts any hurts anybody's credibility. Yeah, yeah, I think they probably figured that they were doing some like uh, grand coalition as alternative media sources against the mainstream. Uh, and you know, as the the old saying goes, there there's uh, safety in numbers. But at the end of the day, uh, I mean, obviously the mainstream was able to absolutely eradicate them both. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's the question. That's, I, I guess, one of the million other questions is if uh, any kind of conservative can actually kind of, uh, uh, I, I guess, kind of carve out their own kind of niche uh, after getting a deplatformed or if it even comes close, which uh, I think, unfortunately, particularly after seeing Donald Trump, you'd think that you think that it wasn't. But uh, you do get to see that kind of this uh, Twitter really is where a lot of discourse emanates from. So mm-hmm. if you're not in that web, then you can be kind of a they the world can turn kind of a blind eye or can be oblivious to you, which is a uh, really kind of freaky when it, when it boils down to it, you know, that now, 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 Paul, do you, do you think that, it, oh, is there anybody that you, I'm sorry. Oh, you, you called him Paul Cotto. <laughs> Paul, no, I, I just said Paul. Oh, sorry. So Paul, do you think, uh, do you think that, uh, do you, do you think that there's anybody that should be deplatformed or are you, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a free speech absolutist. So I, I may think that Alex Jones is an absolute batshit crazy lunatic. Um, you know, and there's other people I, I, I can't stand Nick Fuentes, obviously, for many reasons, not just the fact that, you know, he's anti-Jewish, but there's many reasons. Uh, but I, I don't, I just, I don't like the idea of anti, I don't, like the idea of deplatforming people, even if I disagree with them, especially if I disagree with them, because you know, I think everybody there's a lot of people who disagree with me and, and hate me and think I'm a horrible person. You know, I, I I think everybody I think it should be the free market of ideas, and and if somebody's crazy, then then you expose their insanity through argument, not not through through silence. What do you think? Was this for me? Yes, of course. Okay, uh, I was going to say that. No, I absolutely I agree. People should not be deplatformed unless they have said something basically that gives rise to criminal liability. Uh, unless it's that, I don't think they made business being deplatformed. And I say that as someone who is no fan of uh, of Nick Fuentes, for instance, uh, and I'm certainly not a member of Alex Jones's fan club either. So even though I'm not a fan of these people, I think they should still be able to remain on mainstream platforms. That being said, I see the freedom of association argument, which holds that these companies, uh, these tech companies are private entities. So if they want to kick you off, they can kick you off. And that makes a lot of sense to me too. Although then someone else say, well, these, these people, these companies are basically public utilities in terms of the uh, authority, which they, uh, which they hold uh, as as these uh, centers of mass communication. So there are a lot of different perspectives here, but I do think that on the uh, on the whole, everything being equal, uh, uh, people should not be deplatformed because of whatever view they they espouse. I would say that things only get weighted in a certain way, unequal when it is okay for them to be deplatformed. When what they say gives rise to criminal liability, like say someone 
decided to be, uh, I don't know, a disseminator of uh, child pornography. I wouldn't expect a Twitter or Facebook to keep them on the platform if what they're doing is is, is, yeah. is creating extreme criminal liability. Yeah, of course. Of course. Those, those people I, should be locked under the jail. I'm wondering, with something like in regards to, uh, I guess, with the, I, I think Twitter's still doing this, but uh, if if somebody says something that's anti-COVID or anti-vaccine, they'll put a they'll put some caveat or some marker that says that uh, the vaccine is safe, and they'll give it's a, there's a scientific consensus <laughs> on that. I'm, I'm wondering, would you support uh, wholeheartedly something like that and view that uh, that's ultimately, uh, uh, I guess, for the well-being? Of, that's ultimately probably for the best for people, or probably mm-hmm. for their welfare. Would you? Would you wholeheartedly support something like that if they do something like that and still let them on? Well, I am a big supporter of the COVID vaccines, however controversial that might be in certain quarters. But at the same time, I don't think that it's good for Twitter to be doing this because what it's really doing is uh, is providing a counter argument to your speech instead of being a platform for you to share your point of view. If people want to bring up a counter argument to your speech, they should be able to do so by typing uh, beneath your tweet, replying to it and saying, well, you know, that's a bunch of BS. This is the reality. Twitter shouldn't be doing that for them. When Twitter does that's becoming a publisher and it's 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 uh it's becoming a pseudo journalistic outlet that's what i mean uh and it's taking sides and at that point it's not really a social media platform that's that's right you know the thing is is i I recently had one of my videos taken down on -hmm. youtube and uh, and a copyright or not copyright strike a a violation strike and the reason why is because I, i i've uploaded one of our podcasts and in that podcast i said i'm completely vaccinated i'm pro vaccine I, I think all these conspiracy theorists and uh, they're anti-vaccine and have all these crazy ideas that the, the government's trying to kill you or they're trying to put microchips in you. First of all, there are no microchips that can fit into a into a syringe, so that's that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. But but I says that I, I said this, and then I said, but I don't think that uh, I don't think it should be illegal uh, or it should be people should be silenced that disagree with this. I don't think people should be forced into taking the vaccine if they don't want to. I think they should, but I don't think they should be forced. And I think that they should be able to freely express, you know, their their criticism, regardless of how valid or invalid it is. And just for saying that, even after I said I'm pro-vaccine, somehow, I don't know, it was an algorithm or, and I actually appealed it and and whoever listened to it didn't care, but uh, they, they took the video down just for me saying that. Really? I'm not surprised. I mean, it's crazy. See, that goes to show how these, because uh, even YouTube technically is a social media outlet. It's just that the, the views are expressed via video instead of in text format. But it goes to show how these social media platforms are becoming uh, more or less uh, versions of Vox or, or something like that. Uh, and it's it's highly unfortunate because that's not what these were intended to be. And I don't know why they would have then their protections under federal law if this is what they're going to do, because this is this is crazy. It should not be. Uh, They're censoring people and they're basically trying to turn the platform into something that promotes the ideology, which the uh, people who run the platform approve of. That's uh, that's advocacy journalism. That's not social media. Right. I I was going to ask you kind of shifting gears here and uh, uh I think we're all three atheists or conservative atheists. It's a, I know you uh, kind of uh, take a, have some qualms with labels, but I don't think you have many qualms with that. But mm. do you think do you think a conservative uh, or somebody who identifies as a Republican atheist could ever be elected to some some sort of national office within uh, the next couple of years? 
Yes. Yeah. Not, not, not at the moment, but within the next five to 10 years. Yes. Uh, and you know, some people say, Oh, Joseph, how could this be? You see all this stuff with the religious right going on. The religion, I've seen the stats on where the GOP is now. It's less religious and less socially conservative than ever before. And it's headed, you know, the religion and social conservatism, they're both on the decline in the GOP. So you have this socially conservative religious wing that's getting more vocal and more uh, agitated because it's losing power. And it's, you know, backed into a corner. So it's lashing out. That's basically it. Uh, and uh, in a few years, it's going to be not irrelevant, but certainly much less relevant, just as now it's vastly less relevant than it was during the George W. Bush era. So I think that this is sort of its last hurrah. I think Roy Moore would have been its absolute last hurrah if not for this uh, abortion rule. Well, I, I am I am not just a fiscal conservative. I'm a, I'm a social conservative. Mm. But uh, in fact, I focus more on the social than I do the fiscal. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't understand. People are so dumbfounded by conservative atheists. But George Will is a conservative atheist. S.E. Cup, she says she's a conservative atheist. I don't know. Sometimes she doesn't seem that conservative. Um the little redhead, if, if you know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, I believe uh, Kraut, Krauthammer, Stephen Krauthammer, he was, or Stephen Krauthammer. Um, Charles, Charles Krauthammer Krauthammer. was, uh, yeah, Charles Krauthammer was, uh, was a conservative atheist. Mm -hmm. So they do exist. They do exist. And I, I don't know why uh, people ha have such a difficult time uh, grasping this, because if it's the same as, you know, one of the most religious, openly religious uh, and unapologetically Christian presidents that we've ever had was Jimmy Carter. And he, he's a he's an extreme liberal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if, a, if, a, if a liberal Christian can exist, why could a conservative atheist not exist? And, you know, this is going to be controversial for a lot of people, but... Uh... Christianity is not an inherently conservative religion at all. As a matter of fact, anyway, it's not comprehensively speaking conservatively conservative or progressive, uh, or even moderate. But it is, uh, it, on the whole, not not comprehensively, but just on the whole, more often than not, certainly it leans toward what would now be called, uh, at, at the very least, left of center politics. And uh, for a lot of conservative Christians, they try to ignore stuff about it being impossible almost for a wealthy man to get into heaven or people being told to give all the possessions they have or people being told to destroy the traditional family unit in favor of Jesus. You know, they ignore all this and they just try to basically focus on, I don't know, some interpretation of a uh, of a genuinely conservative uh old testament text that somehow is carried over into the new testament and this somehow supplants what jesus said i mean well i've spoken to christians about this and a lot of them number one don't know what the hell they believe but number two even if they do they, they so badly want to make their worldview make uh sense with regard to the bible that they just interpret reinterpret things and it just becomes after a while you know you don't even want to carry on the conversation so yeah that, that, that that's my take on this yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, no, no, no disrespect to Christians, but basically, Jesus was a, a peace-loving, sandal-wearing hippie. Hmm. He, you know, love everybody, don't hurt anybody, get along with uh, with the, the prostitutes and the and the uh, you know the malcontents of society. Uh, he was a very you know laid-back, uh, live and let live type of guy. So this idea that he's uh, that, that he was. Uh, a conservative. I, I just don't. I just don't. Can't. I can't imagine how they could. I mean, I, they try to mix the the. They try to mix Christianity with Judaism, and obviously, mm -hmm. if you look at it, they're two, completely two, two different uh, religions. And if you mm -hmm. believe that that the Christian God exists, it could never be the same as the, as the Jewish God. They're completely separate. Separate type of personalities.
Mm-hmm. It, it, it's the same God, uh, you, very technically speaking, of Christianity and Islam both say it's the same, the God of Judaism. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it's such a radically different perspective on that God when it comes to Jesus being the 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 uh, the, the quote unquote Savior. That and then you have the Trinity added. Uh, that it's just you know it just falls apart. But a lot of conservative Christians actually borrow from the Hebrew Bible and they try to synthesize that with the Christian Bible. And at the end of the day, it doesn't work. But in all fairness to them, the <laughs> the uh, the the New Testament is so riddled with contradictions uh, that, you know, I guess if they say, well, yeah, there's a contradiction between uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, but we're going to go with it anyway. Uh, and somebody were to say, no, 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 you can't do that. It's a contradiction. Then someone else could say, well, you know, there's a contradiction in the New Testament here, there, and almost everywhere else. So, I mean, who are you to criticize, really? Uh, this is the problem with these very ancient religious texts. They're written by different people in different times, in different places. And then long after the fact, somebody tried to make the story make sense in a, a chronological order of sorts, but it really doesn't. And so people who believe in this stuff are left with uh, all these uh, immense issues, uh, and they try to explain them away, but it never really works. So set, setting aside Christianity for a moment and focusing on Islam, mm-hmm. um, what's your take on Islam, and do you think that there's hope for reform in Islam so that it becomes more moderate and, and more... Um, more palatable the way Christianity and Judaism has? Or do you think that there's just no no reforming Islam? Uh, I, one thing Sam Harris always likes to point out is that the Christians, you know, as brutal as they were in the past, you know, during the Spanish Inquisition and various other times in history, at least they could look to the to Jesus and take a take a more more moderate view of, of, of life and 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 the and the way to operate. Whereas the Muslims, all they have to do is look at Muhammad. Muhammad is not exactly a moderate type of person. So uh, what, what's your take and, and what's your hope for the future with them, if, if any? I think that a reformation in Islam is very difficult to do because of the socioeconomic conditions in which many Muslims live. They're in the developing world, uh, and that might be a bit too kind. It's a lot of it's just the barbaric world. Right. And they are in a, in a place like that, you're not going to get a sort of reformation that you'd expect out of a proto-bourgeois uh, Western society. Uh, there's a reason why Judaism and Christianity were reformed. It's because there were the necessary economic and societal conditions for this. In a lot of the Muslim world, things are just so primitive that they have no. Uh, there's no interest in a reformation because these people are living, uh, in many respects, as their ancestors lived in the Dark Ages. So you know they, they say, "Why bother? Why do we need this?" And you can understand that, even though I think you know Islam without a reformation is a terribly, terribly, terribly uh it's not something that i'm very fond of i'll put it in that way uh but uh all the same uh, i i think that you know a reformation might happen uh it would be a very limited reformation among uh muslims living in the west although even then it looks unlikely because a lot of these muslims become more radical than their immigrant parents were the first generation that was born in the west because more radical than the immigrant parents i mean so it's it's uh it's really uh it's really crazy stuff but i think it's reforming islam is possible it certainly is possible but is it probable i would argue no 
And I think that an Islam without a Reformation is indeed, it's a regrettable sight. Yeah, I, I, I try to think, I try to be optimistic, but I, I just don't see any light at the end of that tunnel. I, I really don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the problem is, is that, you know, with the Christians and the Jews, they intermixed with, uh, with Western civilization, with European culture, and, mm -hmm. and the, the two combined, um, you know, it kind of, they kind of moderated each other. Uh, whereas with, the, with the, the Muslims, they pretty much stayed in the Middle East. Uh, and, and Northern Africa, and uh, they, they didn't really make it into Europe uh, to the same numbers that the Christians and Jews did. And I think, I think that makes the, the, all the difference in the world. The influence I, on yeah. I, I, I was going to ask a kind of, a, I guess, dovetailing with this a bit, because I, I, I just thought of this. Uh, I get a sense that you're more of a dove on foreign policy or pretty much mm -hmm. I've seen from you. And I'm wondering if you were always like that or if you had uh, somewhat of a transformation. I uh, really, uh, as perhaps too young to say, had a transformation, but I certainly became much more dovish as time went on uh, after seeing the consequences of the Iraq War with George W. Bush. Uh, that that certainly woke me up to the uh, to the idea that war is a racket, as Smedley Butler said. Uh, and I've never since since this awakening, if you will, I've never been privy toward any idea of American militarism as a, an imperial force for world uh, betterment or some such garbage like that. Uh, no, I think that American militarism across the world is generally not a good thing at all. And I'm in favor, actually, of having uh, a an army that only uh, assembles during times of war, as was the case initially in, in, in America. Uh, I think America having the standing military it has is not a good thing for it, uh, but uh, fat chance of my perspective ever making it into public policy. But you know, there's no question that the military today is not, you know, it's not the military of when I was in high school, let alone, you know, my father's military, uh, it, it's, it's, it's becoming basically an experimental zone for woke ideology uh, in which the military is becoming more ideologically cohesive, uh, smaller, uh, and uh, frightening in a way because I think it's going to be used uh, against ultimately American citizens domestically rather than abroad. Eventually, yes, I believe that. Yeah, will that's the... I know someone like Glenn Greenwald always makes this point at nauseum that uh, they kind of they, the people who are against neo or that uh, both both conservatives and liberals should realize that uh, what they hate is really the basis of it is kind of in this uh, military kind of radicalization that uh, kind of these like far right or these uh, uh, like these these wars in the Middle East are ultimately due to that, but also kind of like this eternal internal conflict where we're saying that oh well white supremacist white supremacy is the greatest threat and it's going to be such a domestic terroristic kind of a, a bust, which I almost wonder. And I, I know someone like Halsey, someone talks about it this way, but I always feel like neocons, it's almost like this kind of like weird, this almost weird kind of death drive they have mm -hmm. where they just have to destroy anything. And I don't know if you uh, kind of see it that way, but. Uh, oh, I do. I think it's part of, even though they don't say it out loud, it's uh, part of neocon ideology in which there always has to be a conflict in which America is fighting for quote unquote good in the face of quote unquote evil, because it gives legitimacy to the American idea as they perceive it. I think that it's a sort of, uh, as with other dead-end ideologies, uh, there always has to be an enemy to go up against. Uh, to this extent, and this is going to sound bizarre, but the neocons are rather similar to the anti-Semites, that they always have to have this person to be, or this group to be fighting against in order to give themselves uh, some sort of identity. Yeah, the, 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 there might be some truth to that, but it, it has led to the fall of the of one of the evilest empires on the planet, at least in my at least in, in my lifetime, which was the Soviet Union. 
Um, and it also led to the, uh, you know, I, I believe that it could lead to the, the fall of um, China's influence uh, around the world because China is, is really a major problem. Um, you know, I, I think that when we sit back and we don't, we don't put our foot on the snake's neck, I think sometimes we let it grow. And, and that ha I think that's what happened with Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, if he had been stopped at the beginning, perhaps it would, would, there wouldn't have been a World War II. But uh, we, we kind of did a Neville Chamberlain and uh, stuck our heads in the sand and pretended like that he was you know, just another leader and he wasn't going to cause problems. And of course, he was just building up his military, biding his time and, and taking ground slowly. I am totally supportive of the U.S.'s military efforts against Nazi Germany, which I consider to be uh, vastly more evil than the Soviet Union, which is saying something because the Soviet Union was uh, definitely nothing worth emulating. That's putting it mildly. I would say that today, if the U.S. military went up against China, China would probably defeat it. Uh, because I'm sure the Chinese have far more advanced uh, defense technology than we know about, and they also have far more people in their military. And America today just is not united enough domestically to have the sort of uh, wartime mentality which it had right after 9-11. Uh, today, I mean, if it went to war, the, the country basically would eat itself alive as it's doing regardless. So it, I think that America is not, it does not have a unifying culture today. It doesn't have a uh, a coherent national identity it doesn't even have a shared language from sea to shining sea. It's basically, as I say, the new world's European Union, where you have all these parallel societies under the same bureaucratic uh, jurisdiction. And as a result of that, what you have is not uh, an American people, but peoples in America, and that inevitably creates uh, socioeconomic conflict. Yeah, we're, we're coming unglued at the seams, that's for sure. It's really sad to see, but... Uh... I guess nothing lasts forever. No, no, it doesn't. And uh, as people who know me know, I, I'm a supporter of Florida's stance in the American Revolution, which was decided with Great Britain. Uh, Florida, like the colonies to our north, was not part of England. Uh, they were self-governing crown colonies that basically were independent of, of Parliament with the exception of trade and military policy. And Florida, unlike colonies to the north, didn't have trade or military problems with, uh, with, uh, with the motherland. But uh, no, I think that there, there's no question that America is a country that is uh, existing uh, or subsisting on the fumes of its past greatness. And every year, those vapors grow weaker and weaker. And that's that's I think that's the goal of the left, unfortunately. Uh, you know, for, for all the enemies that we might have or, or might have perceived or you know real or perceived uh unfortunately um our greatest enemy is the cancer w w from within uh, mm -hmm. that's eating away it is from the inside and uh to me that's that's the left that's that's definitely the left they you know when they when they spit on the flag when they when they mock people that have patriotic feelings uh when they when they constantly side with with all of our enemies against us uh they're decidedly on everybody else's side besides our own uh, when they hate their own race, their own culture, um, their own country, it's 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 very very sad. It's a, it's a cancer that I, I just don't see how it's it could be eradicated. It seems to be growing. I, I think that America, as people remember it, is, is gone. But uh, <laughs> a pseudo America is definitely going to be gaining steam. Although I don't think it will last as long as the traditional America did. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, I, it's, it's just not, not in a good way. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was actually going to shift gears a bit. 
but uh, I, do, I definitely do concur with uh, everything you said. It's it's unfortunate. I, I would also add that there is a question of uh, uh, maybe I see this of some uh, some people of my ilk, and uh, I don't know to what extent you fall into that. But uh, a lot of these people, I feel like they invertly uh, will ultimately uh, uh, they're they're a lot of the catalyst for this, and that a lot of them are kind of anti patriotic, and that they see America as just something that's uh, faltering and kind of uh, uh, deviating from its mission statements. And I, I feel like inadvertently, even though these people might have some uh, uh, merit, there there will be some merits to their claim. I feel like them being uh, uh, so antithetical to kind of patriotism, I feel like that's ultimately kind of bogging down the country and kind of like a weird, uh, there's kind of like a weird play on the right from that. I don't know if you uh, uh, sent something like that as well, or if you think that that's also a detriment to the country. I think that's very hard to have a, a serious form of patriotism today because America has no serious identity. So basically, if you're patriotic, you're patriotic toward a vision of America you have or perhaps the part of America you live in uh, or your subculture within the United States. And it's perfectly reasonable to be patriotic to any one of these things I just mentioned. There's nothing wrong with these uh, forms of patriotism. But to be patriotic to the U.S. on the whole today, it means you have to equally love San Francisco, the backwoods of Alabama, uh, Fort Kent, Maine, and Key West. And meanwhile, all these places might as well be on different continents, let alone in different countries. Uh, it's just like being an EU patriot. Well, you have to be simultaneously patriotic toward uh, toward French culture, toward Dutch culture, toward uh, Cretan culture, toward uh, German. It's, it's just, you know, it becomes this, 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 all these contradictions that you have to sort of make quote unquote work. Uh, it just doesn't really ever work out. Uh, I, I, I think that, I, I think that it, uh, it, it's, it's a very difficult situation being patriotic in today's America. I don't fault people at all for not being patriotic toward the U.S. in the abstract today. I certainly don't have patriotic sentiment toward what the U.S. has become, even though I freely admit it was the greatest country on the face of the earth uh, for quite a while. It had uh, an immensely uh, profound day in the sun. But I think that's hard to fashion a patriotic identity today when the country is at odds with itself. Yeah, I also think that the, there's kind of this bleak... Uh... One of the problems and the, the kind of the surefire way to kind of drum up patriotism would be to have some sort of unifying war, which I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, it doesn't seem like uh, people are going to be quite as susceptible to it. But who knows? Uh, I guess ideas of heroism can uh, kind of like sting anyone. I mean, you're seeing the left uh, totally lionize Ukraine uh -huh. and then, like it's like things like Reddit, uh, Reddit brigades and then wanting to go join there. But uh, mm -hmm. it seems like one of the only things that would unify the country. And I guess this has been kind of uh, nationally, this has always been uh one of one of the ways to do this but uh is through through a war which uh obviously that i think that would uh uh, uh portend kind of bad consequence or pretend bad things obviously because it's a war but in another sense it would be another way to draw up patriotism which makes you wonder if it's patriotism's ultimately just kind of how it or to what extent is patriot patriotism just kind of an irrational drive that uh, exactly is just kind of erected on the populace by the leaders and what should we make of that you know, it's interesting because patriotism in and of itself is a fine and necessary thing for any given nation to survive. Uh, people should feel patriotism, but the nation should be an organic one, not some synthetic thing where every different thing uh, is made to seem as if it is uh, this wonderfully uh, uniting uh, endeavor. Uh, but in, in America, if, if wants to have patriotism on the basis of war, which is basically the Bush-Cheney approach, uh, then it's going to, number one, eventually backfire because wars tend not to go as people who start them imagine they will. Uh, and number two, 
uh, it's going to mean that if you want to keep the patriotism going, uh, if you want to prevent the backfiring from happening, uh, then you have to ratchet up the war. And that's obviously a, uh, a tremendously uh, ill-advised point of view. So I think that patriotism on the basis of war is a very, very, very bad thing. It's patriotism in lieu of, of organic, genuine patriotism. And I think this false patriotism or pseudo-patriotism should be discouraged at every turn. And I think that today, if America had a war, it, it, the country is so fractured uh sociologically speaking that it wouldn't even unite uh america a war today i think it would probably just make the divisions worse i don't think we would see unity as we did after 9 11 uh yeah that was that was that was a very brief glimpse of patriotism it, it didn't last it didn't last very long it, it resurged for just a moment and and then and then just went to vapors and, and it was back to uh, the left saying that they hate America, the, the right saying they love America, and it was back to the divisions again. But it, it lasted for a very brief moment in time. And uh, I, I knew it wouldn't last, but but I, I had hope. Yeah, no, it's totally understandable. I mean, we all have hope that things will get better, but uh, I don't think America is going to get much better during the years to come, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I, yeah. I see us, you know what I see us devolving into? I see us devolving into a brazil or a south africa type of type of exactly. situation where we're all 100%. living in, in, in walden compounds and uh all of the uh all, all of the uh well all the white people living in basically compounds uh surrounded by by uh by by extreme violence and crime and uh just uh just i, I honestly do I don't, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime you know, I'm 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 almost 52 years old. I, just, I don't think it's gonna happen in my lifetime, but uh, and I don't think it's gonna happen in your lifetime or mm -hmm. or a brighter later's lifetime, but it's going to happen. I think that's the direction we're going in, and in a Brazil or a South Africa type Absolutely. of situation, and uh, that's a, that's a, that'd be a sad, 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 sad state of affairs. Like, I would I wouldn't want to be alive in a situation like that. I think a lot of Americans are going to wind up emigrating over the next few decades to different places. Uh, and who knows, there might be a neo-America, a new American colony set up in, uh, in some Caribbean country. It could definitely happen. Uh, so, you know, uh, this is hope. Hope does spring eternal. But I don't think America is ever going to be what it once was again. Right. I I was going to ask a, a shifting gears, and this is a, one of the questions that uh, I wanted to ask you, but uh, do you know of... Uh, do you know to what extent uh, Paul Godfrey has a rapport with uh, uh, Amy Wax? I know she was on your program once, and I, I remember that uh, I felt bad for you because uh, you were so inundated with questions that uh, <laughs> I think it wanted to say something like, um, I'm going to tap a glass, and it's 30 seconds, and that's the end. Of, or I'm going to yes. get after 30 seconds. And uh, Paul Godfrey was the only one uh, actually heeding it. And uh, I guess Amy Wax, I, I think she just didn't get it, but uh, she just kept uh, uh, going on and on. And she would uh, she would give like these very uh, kind of two, three minute elaborate answers, which was obviously good for uh, for me as a part of the audience. But I could tell you that you were very flustered. But I, I'm wondering if uh, I don't even know if you can divulge that or would feel uh, uh, feel right divulging that. But is, is that still uh, is there still kind of a rapport between them? Or... Oh, oh, absolutely. Amy Wax is a very good friend of Paul's. I'm very glad to see her on the show again. I hope she returns uh, quite soon, in fact. But, oh, Amy and Paul get along very well, and I have a very high opinion of her. There are absolutely no negative feelings toward Amy uh, at Cotto Gottfried. So, so quick question. And I, I, I believe, I, I, you know, I'm kind of, I was kind of remiss in not asking this at the beginning. How did you and and uh, and Mr. Godfrey get together and decide to do a show? 
Well, I know Paul for several years beforehand, and one day uh, I was a- head of a book review at the time, and I thought it'd be nice to add a little program uh, to the book review, uh, a weekly where I would uh, discuss things. And Paul and I, we have had such great discussions over the phone, I thought this could be the basis for a program. And indeed it was. Cato Gottfried was a it, it aired at this book review that I that I helmed, uh, and then it you know became very much its own thing, which it presently is. But uh, it, it it came about from these discussions that Paul and I had had for years over the phone about current events, and I thought these discussions were so enlightening they could be a show in and of themselves, and that's how Cato Gottfried came to be. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I don't, I, it's, it's funny because I've watched a lot of you, and I don't remember that. Which actually, that just uh, that just sprung up another question in my mind because I guess it was the San Francisco Book Reviews, and I'm not quite sure if you still have that website or uh, San Francisco Review of Books. It was never my website. I was just the editor of it, and uh, no, it's gone now, unfortunately. As with so many other things in the world today, it was not uh, well suited for uh, for <laughs> for modernity. But I very much enjoyed what I did there, all the same. Well, now you know that uh, podcast uh, podcast Trump books. So yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. However, unfortunately, and I'm an author, so that's not you know necessarily a welcome relief for me. But uh, they do. Uh, but you know, I really do love writing. Obviously, I have a new book out, so uh, yeah. I'm big on that. Yeah. I've I've never written anything. I I do love reading, and I, I love something called and this is kind of a non sequitur, but uh, I'm a bit of a I don't know. I I think I was born in the wrong because i was born in 1970 but i love uh what's called otr old-time radio dramas oh. um i don't know if you're familiar with that at all but it's I've heard very that. very interesting stuff mm-hmm. yes a lot, a, lot, a lot of the famous actors like kirk douglas and other people uh were in those old-time radio dramas before they became movie actors Absolutely. Yeah. Radio was a very, very interesting media. I mean, it still is, but it used to be, you know, uh, it, it was proto television. So to, to, to the idea of people just gathering around a radio to listen to a drama today is, is, is a little insane. But back in the day, it wasn't. And we still have these old dramas to listen to, just to listen to how things were. And they were quite well made. They really were. Uh, so I have nothing at all against it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, yeah, and by the way, I, I did mention I, I have a book. It's Eye for an Eye. I actually have several books, but this is the newest one, Eye for an Eye. It's a, a true story of life, liberty, the pursuit of murder and revenge at the birth of America. Very, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, catchy title. Uh, some might even say shocking title. But it, it, the, the point of the book is to relate what happened uh, in colonial America when the French and the Spanish uh, went to war with each other in Florida. And this predated Plymouth Rock, Jamestown, the whole thing. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. There's many lessons for the present day. It takes on the 1619 Project because the 1619 Project holds that slavery in America began at Jamestown when the British brought these settlers, these slaves over uh, to work on plantations. In reality, slavery started in 1560. The slave trade, I mean, started in 1565 in St. Augustine when the Spaniards established St. Augustine and they brought the first slaves over. Uh, now, there were American Indian slaves long before that but it wasn't really an organized slave trade at all uh it was just tribes taking prisoners 
But the it, Spanish, not the British, started the slave trade in America, and it started long before 1619, and these same Spanish killed their fellow whites like it was nobody's business, so it wasn't all whites gathering together to profit off of black labor. Uh, it was very, very different, the history of slavery than a lot of people like to think, and I do cover it in Eye for an Eye. I recommend people check it out if they want to get the full story. And what would, what would be the best way to access that? Would it, would it be, does it exist on Audible? Uh, does it, what, what, what would be the best way? To it's on Amazon. That? People just type in I for an I and then Cotto, C-O-T-T-O. It should come right up. And uh, I, I really did want to give people the full story about how uh, the slave trade originated. I mean, obviously, we'll never know exactly everything, but it's the full story insofar as it goes that, uh, you know, there was a key event that happened before Jamestown and that the narrative that slavery in America started with Jamestown is false. Uh, and so people will be able to uh, to understand how uh, this whole slavery issue which still dogs us, obviously, the legacy of it. But the slavery issue was not about you know, all whites banding together to oppress blacks and then therefore uh, the labor of America has been built on the backs of blacks and whites have been profiting off of it. If they don't realize that they are, it's some sort of subconscious thing by now. So the narrative goes, it's basically an article of faith. But uh, in reality, this, uh, these, uh, this, the, the slave trade regarding black Africans came to the U.S. Uh, by white Spaniards who killed their fellow whites and the whites who they killed, the French, uh, didn't have slaves themselves so it, it's very very different than 1619 and uh, yeah people can just look up the book i for an i uh, and then type in kato it's on amazon they'll find it and i hope they check it out because obviously the 1619 narrative is a tremendously uh damaging one it's probably the most powerfully negative uh narrative of history to come up in modern times and it's something that is, uh, it's disorienting, let alone something of disinformation. Now, I, yeah. I can't, I can't say, I can't say when, but I, I, I might be interested in reading it and, and perhaps going over with it, with you uh, sure. in, in, in a future date. Is that something you'd be interested in? 100%. If, if you don't mind me asking, because I, I checked out a little bit of, because is is this like Runaway Masters, where it's a kind of a historical fiction, or is this purely uh, uh, nonfiction? Oh, Runaway Masters is nonfiction as well. This is nonfiction too. Both 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 are both are are nonfiction. Uh, but I wrote each book to read like uh, I would hope a thriller novel, even though it is nonfiction. Uh, but I drawn a lot of historical resources for both books. Uh, Eye for an Eye has many has much more in the way of history pulled directly from uh, historical resources. Uh, so yeah, but both are nonfiction books and uh, they do read like novels though, even though they're, they're, they're not fictional in any regard. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely very interested in reading it and uh, perhaps Brighter later, later will as well. And I can't give you an exact date uh, when we could do, when we could do this in the future, but no I, I would love to set up some time when we could, uh, you know, go over it, all three of us go over it and, uh, and, and talk about the, the book in, in more depth and detail. It would just be really interesting to me. I, I, I the, the idea of the book uh, set aside the title, the title is, you know, is, is good, but setting, setting aside the title, what you covered and, and uh, you know, the subject matter, it sounds excellent. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that, that's quite a compliment, and it's very well received. Uh, I, I really do hope that people uh, find the book to be of interest because it's not, even though it is a book about history, uh, what one 
I think will take away from history is relevant to today and much more importantly to tomorrow. Uh, and it, uh, people really do need to know what happened in the past in order to have a clear perspective on where things are going. And unfortunately, a lot of people are so badly misinformed about the past that they don't basically, uh, they, they, they repeat the mistakes of history without realizing as much. And it's a very sad thing. Yeah, one of, one, of, one of the things is, is history revisionists drive me crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, they call it Black Wall Street, the Tulsa, Oklahoma yep. situation. And uh, they have that completely wrong, completely wrong what happened. Uh, if you look into it, if it takes it doesn't take long to look into it. And for some reason, no one ever does. And uh, and so they make up all these ridiculous uh, ideas of what happened. Same thing with the Tuskegee experiment. Tuskegee experiment was horrible. Uh, they they took servicemen that were black and they they didn't give them syphilis they gave them uh, you know placebos to see how the the disease would disease would progress without proper treatment but they did not give these men syphilis they they found men that had syphilis and uh, that's that's a pretty pretty important distinction I think but uh, there's a lot of these a lot of these uh, you know changing of the facts that drives me crazy and I, I think your book would would definitely uh, go in, in the you know. That would further uh, reality and and hopefully dispel some of these myths that are being uh, promulgated. Absolutely, I, I I certainly hope that it does. And thank you very much for for the kind words, uh, because there is a lot of misinformation out there. There's even a book I'm reading it. Well, I'm not reading it, but I'm reading about it right now. African founders: How enslaved people expanded America's ideals. Uh, at the time, there, there, the America's founding, there absolutely were no black founding fathers. Uh, to call a book African founders is peculiar to say the absolute least, unless one, of course, is talking about an African nation, in which case there are going to be African founders, needless to mention. But so far as the United States goes. Uh, you know, th this is just a sort of uh, historical revisionism that's profoundly dangerous, and I hope that my book is is an antidote to it, because uh, if people believe the nonsense, they will they will absolutely repeat the mistakes of history and probably intensify them, and that will be very bad for us all. Yeah, nothing good comes from lies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. And the 1619 Project is, is a very, very powerful lie. As I cover in the book, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the, the founder of it, Nicole Hannah-Jones, even admitted that it's an origin story. It's not, you know, some sort of historical assessment, but it's presented as, obviously, a, 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 a serious take on the history of, of slavery and the United States, moreover. Uh, so people don't look at it as... as uh, what it as what it is which is an origin story that's more like an origin fairy tale but they look at it as wow this actually happened uh some people even now believe that traffic patterns are racist as a result of uh 1619 i mean really it, it, it's 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 yeah racist highways it's it's you know it's it's it, you know i recall i recall i recall uh, a meeting and it was a it was a city council meeting I don't, I don't even remember what city it was but i remember it was in the news and i i i i laughed so hard i thought i was going to bust a rib uh, mm -hmm. the the one city councilman said every time an important issue comes into this council council room uh, and we, we're supposed to discuss it it's like it disappears into a black hole and immediately one of the black uh, council members said why does it have to be a black hole? 
I couldn't believe it. Oh my god, my ribs were hurting. Why does it have to be a black hole? It has nothing to do with race. It's it's a it's a scientific term. It's a black mm -hmm. hole. It's what are, what are you talking about? I don't mm -hmm. understand. Am I crazy? This is just insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, then there are also the racist trees in Palm Springs. I don't know if you remember that one, but in Palm Springs by a golf course, there were these uh, trees planted, uh, very tall ones, to obscure the nearby houses. And the people who lived in those houses uh, historically were blacks who would uh, be maids and butlers to you know, the very wealthy people of the city. Uh, and so it was claimed that the trees are racist, so they must be uh, taken out as a legacy of racism. And now people uh, have an unobstructed view of the golf course, and needless to say, the much higher probability of golf balls flying into their windows. So, I mean, you know, it's, 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 we're in a very bizarre age. Yes, we I are. I was wondering uh, uh, really quickly with the book, and uh, I, I know you've done debates in the past. I, I think mm -hmm. the only time I could, the only debates I've seen uh, of you have been uh, from the Killstream, so maybe mm -hmm. maybe that could be a bit of a misnomer there. But uh, I'm wondering, would you ever be interested in debating someone on this, or have you ever tried to sure. uh, made ignorance on that? Okay. I'm not debating anyone on the issue of 1619 or other issues raised in my book, but I'd be glad to debate someone who, uh, you know, is, is, is knowledgeable. Uh, I was actually in a debate the week last week uh, on the crucible uh, where I uh, went up against this fellow on the left who is uh, not, a, has no fear of overpopulation. We'll put it that way. A very interesting debate. He tried to straw man me, but uh, I don't think it worked out well. Uh, and of course, when it comes to debates, everybody thinks that they won. So I'm not going to say that I beat him or he beat me. But uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it was a very uh, worthwhile chat. So, so, so my question it out, to you, yeah. it sounds very interesting. My, 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 my question to you is, uh, so you've done, you've got the eye for an eye, uh, you've written other books. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything that you're working on now or that you plan for the horizon? Yeah, I'm going to write my th the last book in my trilogy about early American history, which happened in, in Florida. Florida, I mean, was before the rest of them. Uh, Massachusetts, Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, so on and so forth. Uh, my last book is, in this trilogy is going to be about how the Spanish originally uh, went on their expedition in Florida, tried to search for golds, and they didn't find any, uh, tried to convert the natives, didn't work out, and they eventually had to leave the state because it was a total failure. Uh, and that actually set the stage for the French to come because the French believed that the Spanish had abandoned Florida, and the Spanish said, no, we didn't. And so the French settled Florida up in Jacksonville, the Spanish came to settle what's now St. Augustine, and the Spanish annihilated the French. But uh, talking about uh, the original expeditions in, in, in Florida. Yeah, I will be getting to that. Should be interesting. I, I think perhaps Eye for an Eye will be what people in the long run find most engaging out of this trilogy of my Runaway Masters, Eye for an Eye, than the last book. But uh, it will be something else. I hope that people like it. Right. I, I can't imagine them not liking it. You, not only, not only it, you, know, you present it very well, Sounds very interesting, and I, I know for a fact I'm going to read The Eye for an Eye. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much, and I hope that uh, people do check it out. Obviously, I think they will come away from the book, uh, certainly not with the impression that their time has been wasted.
No, I, I don't think there's any fear of that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and it's just sad to see a lot of uh, misinformation out there now about the past. Uh, it's not even just in book format, but like at Monticello, this new uh, narrative that they have where Jefferson was basically a bad guy and everything boils down to slavery, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely unfortunate to see, but not surprising. All roads lead to slavery. <laughs> yes, they do. Even even in Palm Springs, where there was never a slave plantation, the racist trees are the legacy of slavery. You know, I, I always say that if I go to 31 Flavors and I pick anything besides chocolate, I'm obviously a white supremacist. And if you pick chocolate, you're trivializing the black experience and right. uh, exploiting the skin color of America's uh, most uh, misbe... Uh, how, what would the term be? America's uh, highest on the victimhood priority scale minority group. Well, I'm, fet I'm fetishizing the chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the, the, the film The Birdcage. It was hilarious. From the 1990s, Gene Hackman uh, was a senator and his yeah. uh, ally in the Senate. Yeah, there, These were two religious right guys, but his ally dies uh, with a black prostitute. Uh, and, and his last words to the prostitute are, uh, the money's on the table, chocolate. And then there's a, a part of the movie where Al Sharpton gets angry about <laughs> And it's, it's, just, it's just great. I don't think they could do it today, but it was hilarious. Yeah, I, I was going to say that uh, a point made by Holsey that uh, he, he made when, we were, when he interviewed him was that... Uh, you know, any way you chalk it up that the people that are like on the, the highest on the intersectional kind of totem pole, like a black transgender and people of that, that ilk, like uh -huh. if it was ever some sort of like anarchist situation, those would be the first people to die. <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't last long. I'll put it this way, if left to their own devices in a third world state of affairs. You, yeah. you know, I, I think I already know the answer, but what is your position on the whole transgender? Everybody gets their own pronoun. Um postmodernist, uh, subjectivist <laughs> world that we're living in right now? Well, I think we've come a long way. My father was a police officer in New York in the late 1960s until the uh, late 80s. And in the beginning, uh, they actually arrested transvestites for, for publicly presenting to themselves as being of the opposite sex. And now we've come to the point where being trans is considered to be a protected class under Uncle Sam's purview. So we've come quite a long way. And uh, who dares to criticize this progress? I mean, it's so obviously wonderful to see how, uh, how America has been uh, made so fortunate by the presence of those who aren't sure what their gender is. So they create some sort of neutral pronoun that doesn't even make sense in a grammatical context, but whatever. Uh, so I, I think we've really come a long way and we should all be happy to see the destruction, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the immense change in how, uh, in how gender and human biology <laughs> are, are addressed. Uh, on a more serious note, I will say that I think that this whole thing of, of trans uh, I, I think people who, who who believe they're of a different gender than their biological sex are are mentally uh, how do I how do I say this kindly? 
I was going to say mentally defective. That just sounds a bit too harsh, uh, although it's probably not inaccurate. But uh, th th they are mentally disturbed. And uh, society championing their disturbance is some sort of uh, righteous cross to bear, uh, which makes them uh, somehow inherently good people, is a terribly misguided thing. And I think it's certainly making, uh, it's certainly creating needless problems. And in the long run, I don't imagine this is how society will sustain itself. Yeah, I, I just don't see how that could. Do you um, think, uh, I was going to say really quickly to kind of the transgenderism, because I don't, I don't see how it ends. And I know people, there are a lot of people like to think it's like gay, uh, it's like gay marriage or any sort of gay rights, which mm -hmm. I think there's a problem there because it's where if you look at gender dysphoria and particularly people that transition, it shows that their mental uh, health doesn't seem to get any better and they seem to have just as many co comorbidities and just as many problems. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's any way that this could be seen as, uh, I guess, uh, people uh, uh, preempted or maybe uh, promptly uh, uh, transitioning and there's really, uh, really, or getting a note by their psychologist saying that, oh, this is fine, or their physician? Do you think this could ever be seen as something like a lumbotomy? Like I know Douglas Murray, uh, 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 a pine that this could uh, be happen where we could view it as like lumbotomy where we have this kind of like barbaric procedure and we just re realize it uh, uh, in retrospect or do you think it'll always be the, it'll, it'll always be the case that the left will always be clinched in on this and perhaps because uh, if maybe perhaps because it's kind of like when people see it uh, they always bring up with oh if you allow gay marriage there'll be like a slippery slope and it'll ultimately lead to something like pedophilia which to some extent, I think it's a stretch, but I mean, when you have things like transgenderism, which could be proven just to be a mental illness and ultimately not benefiting people, I, I think you do have to wonder. I, I, I guess I'm wondering if you think what, what's the uh, end game for this or, or transgenderism, if there if there is one. I think there is no end game for transgenderism in and of itself because it uh, people are always creating new identities <laughs> that they say they are, and there will always be new victimhood narratives based upon these identities. So I, I don't think that this is going to stop. I think this is on and on. Some people say that ultimately will lead to transhumanism, which to me is actually much less nefarious than transgenderism. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think that it's not necessarily that. I mean, I guess it could be, but but I, I doubt that. I mean, I think transhumanism exists regardless of, of anything to do with people who say they're of a different uh, gender than their sex. But I think it, it just won't stop. I think it will always metastasize. And there will always be some new victimhood identity so that the left will always be able to zero in on this as a means of uh, something that they could use for power. Yeah, right. I, I also would say that uh, there's a there's a quick question that I think uh, one of the things you have to delineate here is that uh, the people who, I guess, identify as a different gender or go as like they, them or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the people that take it a step further and actually uh, uh, go on hormones and change their body chemistry. And I think that uh, uh, or body hormones, but uh, I, I think there's kind of a de delineation there. And I know it's something like 20 percent of people or some absurd amount of people now identify as uh, LGBTQ. I think it was like 17 percent. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't it, it would be interesting to see if kind of you could see a, a stymieing of the uh, uh, kind of gender, uh, I guess, the gender procedures like we're seeing in a lot of the Nordic countries where they're outright banning a, a child conversion or a child transition. And you could still see something like uh, what you're seeing with uh, people having different pronouns. So I'm wondering if something like that's possible. But uh, I, I just don't know. It seems like such a uh, it, it seems like uh, there's really no end in sight. And just because of this kind of like it's they're ultimately going to be ingrained into kind of this like intersectional mm -hmm. like uh, uh, prism, which I guess as they call it, the alphabet uh, mafia. So I guess we'll have to see what happens there. But uh, For, I, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was done. 
for as long as there are people around that have immensely difficult issues of self-identity and uh, obviously a, a disdain for who they are and their lot in life, the left will find issues to use uh, in politics to motivate these people uh, to, to turn out to, to the voting, to the polling station. That's really it. Uh, and transgenderism is a particularly good issue because they are constantly uh, able to use it to aggravate people and to make them believe that they are being persecuted. Meanwhile, their identity this week is different than it was last week. So this is, uh, the, unlike, say, gay issues, which are basically just what they are, homosexuality, this trans stuff can take on new forms Forms, and uh, that makes it very easy to exploit for the left. So I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. Um, mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Cotto, it, it is, uh, it has been great. I hope you come back. I hope you agree to come I back. I absolutely will. And I very uh, much like either one of you to be on uh, Cotto Godfrey. Feel free to send me a DM, and we can set it up. Absolutely, oh, wow. absolutely, definitely. I would, I would love that. Um, so. But we're going to, uh, if you don't mind, we're going to wrap it up at this point. Certainly. I think uh, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, overburden you. I've had you on for more than an hour and a half. Oh, it's fine. It's been an excellent conversation, but I don't want to take advantage. And so, uh, I really appreciate it. Again, is eye for an eye. Eye for an eye, a true story of life, liberty, the pursuit of murder, and revenge at the birth of America. I hope folks check it out, and I thank you for the kind words. And well, I thank I'm, both of you for having me on. Period. I'm yeah. going to add the link to the Amazon link to uh, the description of this of this uh, uh, of this interview. Outstanding, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. You're very welcome, and uh, I, I hope we talk again soon. I have no doubt that we will. Both of you, please take it easy. Yep. You too. Take care, sir. Great talking have to you. Have a great one. Bye bye. Bye.